We're going to start by reading a scripture. So if we want to stand together, if you want to turn your Bibles on to Luke chapter 19, I'm going to read the story of Zacchaeus. At the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And hopefully everyone will say, thanks be to God, something like that. So this is Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Amazing. Feel free to, to grab a seat. We're starting a new teaching series today, Encounters with Grace. And in many ways, my message has already been preached through the worship, this idea of returning to our true identity as sons and daughters. So it's already been preached, but I'm going to preach it again. Um, and I'm just going to keep on that theme. Um, we're going to be looking at encounters in the Gospels with Jesus. Each of these encounters is an encounter with grace. The Greek word for grace is charis. It literally means a gift. In every encounter we're going to read, people are given a gift. And that gift is their redemption. And by redemption, I mean the restoration of their true identity. That as children of God, we are chosen, loved, adopted, forgiven, free and called. And over the next six weeks, we're going to be zooming in on those themes of our identity. We're chosen, loved, adopted, forgiven, free and called. So beneath this understanding of redemption and restoration of our true identity is another big question. The question is, what does it mean to be human? What are we restored to be like? Now, Psalm 8. I'm guessing you've had a moment like this where you're in a field, you're staring up at the sky, you can see the stars and in that moment you feel small. Or maybe you're looking out at the ocean and the waves pounding against the rocks and you feel small in that moment. Well, the psalmist is having one of those moments and he basically says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place... The question that comes to mind is, is what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. This is the psalmist in a moment of awe basically saying, God, like this is immense. What does it really mean to be human? It's an absolutely critical question for us to engage in. And we're going to be looking at the biblical answer to that question. But before we look at the biblical answer to that question, I just want to highlight the narrative that surrounds us, the secular narrative that surrounds us, and the answer provided from the narrative of secularism. So I'm going to be quoting a guy here called Carl Becker, um, a philosopher who basically takes Psalm 8, and he's taken the mick by providing an enlightenment answer to the question. He says, what is man that the electron should be mindful of him. Man is but a foundling in the cosmos, 
abandoned by the forces that created him, unparented, unassisted, and undirected by omniscient or benevolent authority. He must fend for himself and with the aid of his own limited intelligence find his way about in an indifferent universe. Just read it, soak it in and let hope rise. (laughs) You're a nobody. You are unparented. You are unassisted. You're on your own. You are undirected. You are abandoned and your life is meaningless. We're living in a cultural moment where people are desperately trying to construct an identity, grab labels to try and construct an identity. And I I wonder if part of the reason we're trying to construct an identity, we're deconstructing everything else, but trying to construct an identity is we've basically embraced a narrative that says you're a nobody and the soul can't bear the idea that life is meaningless. So suddenly the soul goes on a mission that can't be true. I must be made for more than that. I can't be like unparented, unassisted and undirected and abandoned. I just can't embrace that as a truth over me. I'm going in search for an alternative identity. Is there a better story? Is there a better narrative that brings meaning to our identity? And the answer is yes. The narrative of Jesus purchasing our redemption. Um, In the ancient world, when you sort of liberated a slave, someone would pay for them to come out of slavery. That payment was the redemption payment. It was more than just liberation. It was setting them free so they could be the people they were created to be. There's a story of Abraham Lincoln, potentially an urban legend. Um, But this story before he became president in the States, um, he was traveling around the country and he entered this one town and he stepped into a slave auction. And he was just watching this slave auction, a fairly standard auction, different types of slaves were being purchased um, by different owners. And then the atmosphere turned in the room and he was like, something's going on here. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel good. And then notice these slave girls being paraded throughout the room. And then he was like, oh no, I know what's happening. That these young girls are going to be sold as sex slaves. And the men in the room start cheering and jeering. And then the auction begins. One young slave girl is brought onto the stage and the bids begin and one guy puts in a bid and the others start cheering and another outbids that person and Abraham Lincoln is disgusted by this moment like outraged by the injustice of this moment and from the back of the room he shouts and the place goes still everyone turns the back like what is going on and he puts in a bid that no one in the room could get close to matching And as they look at this guy at the back of the room, they're like, you are mad. If you're willing to spend that kind of amount of money on this young slave girl, what are you going to do to her? And the auctioneer basically sees no one can match it, so points the young girl towards Abraham Lincoln, and she walks to the back of the room. Everyone's watching this encounter take place, and she's shaking, terrified, doesn't know what's going on gets to the back of the room and Abraham Lincoln looks her in the eye and says, you're free to go now. People are like, what? She can't compute what's going on. You're free to go now. She's trying to process this and she begins to ask some questions to get clarity. Am I free to go like wherever I want to go? And Am I free to go with whoever I want to go with? And he says, like, yes, 
You are free to go. She spends a minute longer trying to process this, and this is her response. Well, if I'm truly free to go, I want to go with you. I want to follow you. And they leave the auction together. If you ask any follower of Jesus why they follow Jesus and how they came to follow Jesus, you're going to hear 101 different stories. But at the root of each of the responses, hopefully this moment where people encountered the grace of God, where they recognized the lengths that God would go to at the cross to purchase their freedom. And in encountering that grace, we're like, if you're really that good and you value me that much, then I want to follow you. I want to be around you. Is there a better story? Absolutely there is. It's the story of redemption in Christ Jesus. And redemption in Christ Jesus isn't God adding value to something worthless, but restoring value to something priceless. Like Abraham Lincoln in that moment didn't see a slave girl, someone worthless, saw a daughter of God. And there was a restoration of identity and a restoration of worth. Redemption isn't adding value to something worthless, but restoring value to something priceless. So at the root of this understanding of redemption is this question, what does it mean to be human? So we're going to go back to the beginning of the story, Genesis 1. This is what the scriptures say. Then God said, this is part of the creation narrative, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. These are two Hebrew words here, Selem and demut. Let's just say that together. Selem and Demut, beautiful. Um, if you know Anna Mason, you'll know that she has two tattoos on her ankles. If you've studied her ankles, and I'm really hoping you haven't, but if you studied her ankles from a distance, you might have thought, there's a little bit of dirt. Has anyone told Anna there's a bit of dirt? It's not actually dirt. It's a tattoo. So the, there are the two tattoos of these Hebrew words, Selem and Demut. You'll often find Anna in conversations at the pub, um, evangelistically trying to engage with those outside the church you can see them asking questions what does it mean to be human and she takes her shoes off socks off and basically points to her ankles let me tell you about Selem and Demut so I want to tell you about Selem and Demut so thousands not exaggerating thousands of books have been written trying to unpack what these two terms mean it's going to be very difficult for me to summarize thousands of books that I haven't read. So let me summarize the one or two that I have read about this question. What does it mean to be human and what do these two terms mean? Three points, three ideas, always three. Um, number one, it means that we're the children of God. So only once outside of the Genesis account that I just read, are these two terms, Selim and Demut, found side by side in Scripture? And it's in Genesis 5 where basically the author goes back to the creation story and then adds this detail. In verse 3, when Adam lived 130 years, he had a son in his own, lightness, good reading, um, in his own image, good, and he named him Seth. So this is, this is the author basically trying to make it really plain and simple that what Seth is to Adam, humanity is to God, a beloved child. Like I remember holding my three kids when they were born 
and just being overwhelmed. I'm, I'm in over my head. I'm in over my head. Um, and then looking at them and, and the strength of affection that I had for them on day one, it scared me. You know, the strength of affection that God has for you, it's, it's overwhelming. This is why Paul prays that we would just begin to grasp hold of just a bit more of the height, the width, the depth of God's love that surpasses knowledge. It's too good to fully get your head around that we should be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is Paul basically saying, if you understood how much you were loved by God, just a little encounter with the love of God, it would totally transform your life. You're not a nobody. You're a child of God. Karl Barth, Swiss theologian, one of the greatest theological minds of his generation. He was once hounded by a group of academics. They wanted to ask him this question, what's the most profound theological thought you've ever had? And they eventually hunt him down, pin him down, not literally. Um, and they basically say, go on, tell us. We've been reading your works. Like, what is the most profound thought you've ever had? Right, and I'm guessing they were hoping for Karl Barth to drop some sort of theological insight on predestination or, you know, suffering. Where is God in the midst of suffering? And he says this to these academics. The most profound thought theologically I've ever had is this. And you can imagine like the lean in moment like, yeah, yeah. And he says, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me. So, you can imagine deep disappointment. Oh, we knew that. We were, we were hoping for a little bit more. But he was basically saying, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. You can rush over that truth. But if you just chew on it for a little while and allow it to sink to the deepest parts, it will transform your life. You're not a nobody. You're a child of God and he loves you. Selem demu, it means we are the children of God. In encounters with grace, we're restored to our identity as his children. Secondly, this language of Selem and Demut is the language of royalty. So back to Psalm 8. The psalmist, probably David, having this epic moment. Wow, look at this. Like, what does it mean to be human? And you would expect, if you've read the Old Testament, that the summary of the Old Testament understanding of what it means to be human might be something that we would made from the dust and we will return to the dust, right? You might expect a response along those lines, but the response is completely different. Verse four, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? And here's the response. You've made them a little lower than the angels. Hebrew word there, Elohim, could be translated heavens, could be translated God. You've made them a little lower than God and you've crowned them royalty language, with glory and with honour, and you made them rulers, royal language. That's what kings and queens do, they rule. In other words, what does it mean to be human? You're a child of God, but you are royalty. Genesis 1 and 2 is loaded with royal language. What does it mean to be human? We have a royal identity. In the ancient world, you had tiers of being. You had divinity, you had royalty, the image to us, what the divine realm was like, and then you had humanity, and even within humanity, you had different tiers. But in the Hebrew story, you've got divinity, and then you've got the image bearers of God, all 
with a royal identity. And therefore we treat all humanity with that royal understanding of who they are made to be. Now, Mother Teresa did the most phenomenal work in the slums of Calcutta. And they were rescuing people from the streets and bringing them into shelters where they could be nursed back to health. And there was this one story of a beggar they found on the streets. This beggar was dying. This beggar had open wounds and sores. Maggots were eating the rotting flesh of this beggar. They brought this beggar back to the shelter to nurse him during his dying hours. And there was a journalist working with Mother Teresa that basically took Mother Teresa to one side and said, look, the work you're doing it is unbelievable. Really respect the work you're doing. There is a bit of a problem with the work that you're doing, though. There's just not enough strategy and intentionality behind it. Like, you can't rescue this beggar. He's going to die. But if you just leave him to die, you can actually reach people in time and save their lives. And Mother Teresa basically said, yeah, we get that. But our job is to treat people with dignity, whether that's in life or in death. So we're going to give this beggar a dignified death. So they go back to the bedside of this beggar, Mother Teresa, this journalist and a few others, and they are just with him as he passes away so that he's not alone for this terrifying moment in his story. These were his final words to Mother Teresa as he died. He said to her, All my life, I've lived like a dog, and today I die like a king. All my life, I've lived like a dog, and today I die like a king. You see, Mother Teresa knew what it meant to be human, and that in redemption, we're not adding value to something worthless. We're restoring value to something priceless. You have a royal identity. Did you know that? When God looks at you, he sees royalty. And when he looks at your neighbor, he sees royalty. We've got to recapture this understanding of what it means to be human. Thirdly then, what do these terms, Selem and Demut, mean? It means that we're God's living statues. We're God's living statues. I'll unpack that. But what I basically mean is we are representatives showcasing divine glory. Our God is an artist and you're his work of art. Our God is an artist, you're his work of art. So in the ancient world, when a king or an emperor couldn't visit remote parts of the empire, they would erect a statue in the corner of that empire. And when people saw the statue, they were reminded of the emperor or the king that ruled over them. Um, And they were to honor the statue. In honoring the statue, they were honoring the king. If they were to dishonor the statue, that would be the same as dishonoring the king. And that would be a crime punishable by death if you were graffitiing or defacing the statue. In other words, you can't distinguish the statue from that which the statue represents. And we get this understanding throughout scripture. For example, Proverbs 14, as the writer says, those who oppress the poor show contempt for their maker. To oppress someone made in the image of God is like oppressing God himself. You see this in the great commandment, that loving your neighbor who's made in the image and likeness of God, that is a way of us loving God. We are living statues reminding people of the God who reigns over us. Here's another thought. In the ancient world, every God had a temple, every temple had a statue pointing to the God that was worshipped within that temple. So every God had a temple, every temple had a statue, apart from the nation of Israel. They had a God. Yahweh God, and they had a temple in Jerusalem, but there were no statues in the temple. Why? 
And the answer is because Yahweh God doesn't need statues of stones devoid of breath. He has living statues. Priests moving around the temple, showcasing the glory of God. We are living statues, a priesthood of all believers, showcasing divine glory. Do you know that's who you are? You're a living statue. You're a work of art. When God made you, he was showing off. He was showing off his glory. Now, honestly, some of you, you can't hear that. You've got mechanisms to push back that kind of truth. It's too good to be true. I cannot be a work of art. God could not have been showcasing his glory when he made me. So you've got mechanisms to protect you from the reality that could transform you. But I want you to know that when God made you, he was showing off. He was showcasing his divine glory. So what does it mean to be human? It means we're sons and daughters of God with a royal identity, his living statues in the world. Back to this thought then, redemption isn't adding value to something worthless, but restoring value to something priceless. So when Jesus is walking through on his way to somewhere else and he sees what everyone else would have named as an outcast, a nobody hiding in the tree. He says, Zacchaeus, calls him by name. That would have been an amazing moment. Doesn't call him by a curse word because everyone else would have done. Doesn't say, Zacchaeus, you've betrayed us. You're getting rich while we as a nation are getting poor. Like we detest you. No, he says, Zacchaeus, I'm choosing you Want some grub at your house? Could go to any house of someone in the crowd. I'm choosing your house. Zacchaeus is overwhelmed. This is an encounter with grace. What is the gift in this encounter? It's the restoration of Zacchaeus' identity. You're not a nobody. You're a child of God. And when I look at you, I see royalty. And when God made you Zacchaeus, he was showing off. He wanted to showcase his divine glory. And when Zacchaeus grabbed hold of that truth, it transformed his life. It's like, okay, I'm going to give back everything that I've stolen. I I, I want to be an entirely different person to to honour who you are and what you've done for me. This is an amazing moment of redemption. And what does Jesus say? Today, salvation has visited this house. Let me close briefly by looking at this incredible passage in Ephesians 1 where we begin to understand what it really means to be chosen by God, his treasured possession. Over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack these words. Chosen, loved, adopted, forgiven, free and called. I just want to zoom in on chosen just for one moment, hoping that this stuff will move from the head to the heart and transform us. So this is Paul outlining the spiritual blessings available in Christ Jesus. And you'll notice that what he really wants to underline for the people that potentially at the top of the list of all the blessings that are available in Christ is that you're chosen. He chose you. So often in our faith, because of Western individualism, we talk about us choosing God. When did you choose to follow Jesus? And the central point 
around which we move is that actually God chose us. So let's look at briefly what Paul says. Pretty lengthy passage. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms, not just with one or two spiritual blessings, but every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then we're going to underline this theme of chosenness. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us, which means chosen beforehand, for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's given freely to us in the one that he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. In other words, he knew what he's doing. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were... Good reading. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You were chosen. Now, for the theological nerds in the room, for all four of you, you'll know that there's a massive debate beneath this of like, what, the sovereignty of God? Did God choose us or the free will of humanity? Did we choose him? And you've got the Calvinists over here emphasizing the sovereignty of God. God chooses us. And strict Calvinists would say God chose some for salvation, some for damnation. And over this side, the Armenians saying, no, 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 God dignified us with free will. We get to choose whether we follow God or choose not to. What is it? Sovereignty, free will. Calvinism, Arminianism. Well, let me just say what Karl Barth says on this. This is one of his many profound thoughts. He basically says, well, what does the text actually say? The text constantly refers to in Christ. All the spiritual blessings come to us in Christ. For he chose us in him, in love, in Christ. In other words, he predestined us down to verse 11. In him we were chosen. In other words, Karl Barth says, Christ is the chosen one. He is the predestined one. And when you say yes to Jesus, you say yes to his chosenness. And everything that's true of Christ becomes true of you. And all the blessings that come from the Father and land on the Son flow through the Son and land on you because you are in Christ. So there's sovereignty and there's free will. That was just for the nerds who wanted to unpack that. But let's just zoom in a bit more. Because I want you to understand his treasured possession, right? Your existence is a sign of your chosenness. God chose to create you. There are no mistakes in the kingdom of God. I know in certain families we say, oh, she was our little surprise. One expecting her, but it was a good surprise, right? <laughs> there, there are no surprises in the kingdom of God. And there are no mistakes in the kingdom of God. The fact that you exist points to God choosing you. 
And if you could get your head around your chosenness, it would transform you from the inside out. The psalmist knew this. The psalmist was reflecting like, you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Like, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Your existence points to your chosenness. Secondly, he chose you in love. You were created from the overflow of his love. Now let's just borrow from the world of dating, which will just draw in a bit more engagement in listening to this illustration. But imagine you come to KXC, you pop to the pub afterwards, um, you're single, and you notice someone across the room, you're like, hmm, would love to facilitate a conversation with that person. And you walk across the room and imagine you say this, hey, I've been observing you from a distance. That's your first mistake. I, I, I've been observing you from the other side of the bar. Um, and, and this really is my conclusion that you've got a lot of love to give. That you've got a lot of love to give and I would like to be the recipient of that love, right? So if that's your tactic, we'd love to pray for you at the end of the service. But, but, but imagine flipping that and you walked across the room and you basically say, look, I've been observing you from a distance. Again, big mistake. But I've been observing you from a distance. And here's what I've noticed. That you were kind and that you were generous and that you were full of joy. And the way you treat your friends, it's beautiful. Here's the deal. I've got a lot of love to give. <laughs> and I would like to give some of that love to you, right? Now, I know you're thinking... That would never happen, Pete. You haven't been in the dating game for 20 plus years. That would never happen. The point of the illustration is you've got the narcissist approach, which is I'm choosing you to love me. You're not going to get very far with that. But then you've got the you know, other-centered approach where you're like, I am choosing to love you in the hope that you'll respond. When God pursues us, he says, I'm choosing to love you knowing that you might totally reject me, but I still choose to love. Your existence is a sign that you were chosen and he created you from the overflow of his love. Thirdly then, he created you and chose you to redeem you to your full identity. So if your understanding of self falls short of, you are a beloved child with a royal identity, a work of art, that means there's a work of redemption that's necessary. And the reason Jesus died on a cross, rose to new life and poured out his spirit is so that you could step into redemption. He chose to redeem you by his blood. And finally with this, he chose you for his purposes. What does it say, verse 11? In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He chose you to be part of his purposes. He's on a mission to renew and redeem all things. He could do it without you, but he doesn't want to do it without you. He wants to do it with you. He wants to partner with you. So how you go about your life, there is always, if you were in Christ, the possibility of redemption breaking out around you. As you treat people as sons and daughters with a royal identity, works of art. It's the most beautiful part of the story in the Gospels when Jesus chooses 
the disciples, basically high school dropouts. If you wanted to follow a rabbi in the first century, you'd approach the rabbi with fear and trembling, basically saying, can I be your disciple? Um, And then the rabbi would interrogate you, like intellectually, theologically, pull you to shreds to see if you had what it took to become a disciple and eventually a rabbi. And if you didn't have what it took, the rabbi would say, go home and learn your family trade. And if you did have what it took, the rabbi would say three beautiful words, come, follow me. And that was stepping into the greatest privilege of your life. Now, these guys in Matthew 4, Simon or Peter, his brother Andrew, and then James and John, they're basically catching fish with dad, which means they're learning the family trade, which means they didn't really quite cut it to become disciples and follow a rabbi. But notice what Jesus does. He calls them by name. In other words, he makes the first move and says three words they thought they would never hear as high school dropouts. Come, follow me. Why do they leave the boat and their father and immediately dash? We're not even sure that they said bye, dad. It's like, come, follow me, us? Like, what? And then they dash right because they understood the weight of that moment of Jesus saying hey boys Andrew Peter James John I choose you you ready to go and change the world you bet I don't think we fully understand that Jesus wants to say over us I choose you fancy going to change the world becoming agents of redemption. If we caught hold of it, of it, from the inside out, there would be transformation. And in us and through us would flow redemption. Why don't we stand?